Trusting the Truth with Samuel Tolley, where we view the world through the lens of Jesus Christ and never view Jesus Christ through the lens of the world, where God's truth supersedes the foolish ideas of man, where religion, politics, cultural ethics, and the issues of today are discussed, because that is where we live, where truth and honesty are not subjective, and God's word is the final arbiter. My twofold mission is to present an unapologetic witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to expose the mental chains imprisoning far too many black Americans by the Democrat Party. Good evening, good evening. Trying to get some of this social media stuff off. I see texts coming through that I don't want to deal with right now. We get into part three of um, this Martin Luther King, a Christian. You know, I think I pretty much established my position on Dr. King, but I'm trying to use the rest of this letter, or should I say this, this paper he wrote, What Experiences of Christian Living in the Early Christian Century Led to the Christian Doctrines of Divine Sonship of Jesus, Virgin Birth, and Bodily Resurrection um, as a teaching guide and a help to those that aren't really sure or know how to refute false documentation. So I want to get back into this, and I would like to finish this up next week. Um, right now, we're going to get into the divine sonship and the virgin birth. And next week, hopefully, I can finish this up by getting into the resurrection. Um, you know, the first series was just of this letter. We're just going through... Dr. King's, well, it seems like his denial of the supernatural. And I explained that already, that basically you cannot have Judaism or Christianity without the acceptance of the supernatural. The fact of it is, is us humans and everything on earth live in time and space. But the God of creation is outside of time and space, and he has always existed. And I find it fascinating, even perplexing, to try to understand how a person could be in a theological seminary, which by the definition, theology is a study of God, and they deny the supernatural. I, it, you know, it, it makes no sense to me. The only thing that I'm getting or sensing is a humanistic, secularized um, ideology that they extracted from the Bible minus the supernatural and a gravitation to want to live up to those human aspects of Jesus's life and ignore the supernatural. But if we ignore the supernatural, we ignore the Bible. If we ignore the Bible, then we're wasting our time. So we're going to get into 
the first doctrine as he wrote it. Um, and let's just go through it and see what we have. It says, the first doctrine of our discussion, and this is Dr. King's writing, um, just to refresh those that may not remember or won't or weren't uh, watching previously. This is a document that he wrote in, in his um, seminary class. What experiences of Christian living in early Christian century led to the Christian doctrine of divine sonship, the virgin birth, and the bodily resurrection. And from reading this document and the previous one I discussed, it led me to my question of, is Dr. King or Martin Luther King a Christian? And I think you will get more insight on to, is he or isn't he, he um, with this section of the, the article that he wrote that we're going to get into. So getting back, it says, the first doctrine of our discussion, which deals with the divine sonship of Jesus, went through a great process of development. It seems quite evident that the early followers of Jesus in Palestine were well aware of his genuine humanity. Even the synoptic gospels picture Jesus as a victim of human experiences, such human experiences as growth, learning, prayer, and defeat are not uncommon in the life of Jesus. Now, I don't remember ever reading, at least in the Bible, about Jesus being defeated in anything. And that's another aspect uh, of Dr. King's writing. There's no biblical references in this at all. And we're talking about a man that says he was a doctor, uh, a Christian theologian, a Baptist pastor. I would have understood this article and the previous one if it will say uh, something that the uh, professor said, I want you to write an article giving me the strongest cases against the sonship, against the <clears throat> virgin birth, and against the resurrection, and then refute those. But no, it seems like he's, to me, and you'll see as we go along, writing from a position of uh, the strongest arguments for and never a biblical refutation of it. I will attempt to present that here as we go. Anyway, even the synoptic gospels picture Jesus as a victim of human experiences, such human experiences as growth, learning, prayer, and defeat are not all at all uncommon in the life of Jesus. How then did this doctrine of divine sonship come into being? Uh, to most Christian people, the answer to that would be self-evident. But we're going to go ahead and look at some scripture. And that's what I'm going to present a lot of scripture. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 22, it says, fellow Israelites, Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, 
and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now, these people, they see Jesus. Um, let me get myself up here. Okay. They saw Jesus, like I said, the miracles, the wonders, the signs, and let's not forget the prophecies. These Jews grew up um, with a prophetic world. And there's many Bible, um, there's like, I think like 300 or so prophecies about the coming Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled each one, each one. So it's not like these people didn't know that there was supposed to be a coming Messiah. Whether or not they believe that coming Messiah is Jesus or was Jesus is another thing. But they had an idea of a coming Messiah. So let's go back to the paperwork here. We may find a partial clue to the actual rise of this doctrine in the spreading of Christianity into the Greco-Roman world. I need not elaborate on the fact that the Greeks were very philosophical-minded people. Through philosophical thinking, the Greeks came to the point of subordinating, distrusting, and even minimalizing anything physical. Anything that possessed flesh was always undermined in Greek thought. And so in order to receive inspiration from Jesus, the Greeks had to apotheosize him, that is to elevate him or rank him as a god. We must remember that the Logos concept had its origin in Greek thought. It was only natural that the early Christians, after coming in contact with the Greeks, would be influenced by their thoughts. You know, what's fascinating here is he's given the impression that the early Christians were Greeks. The very first Christians were Hebrews, were Jews. Um, his disciples were Jews, the apostles, those the, the, the beginning ones. And he's ignoring that. Now, as far as we must remember that the Logos concept had its origin in Greek thought. Once again, we need to go back to the word. And look at the fact what it said in Colossians. And we <clears throat> shared the scripture before. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For in him and in him, if you read through the context in your Bible, it's referring strictly to Jesus. All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, if Jesus, if everything was made by Jesus, then he can't be one of the things that were made. If everything is held together 
by Jesus, then there, there could be nothing holding him together with everything. Now, this is clearly a reference to not only, uh, this is a clearly a reference to his uh, divine being, the, the God-man himself. So this idea that the Logos concept was a Greek concept ignores and 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 by the way this is colossians so this would have been i believe a, a writing by paul and paul was actually to be honest with you paul was the earliest writer his books predate by and large the gospels themselves and you know when we, you know most people when we look in our bibles we are generally let me get in here we are generally, we look at the New Testament and we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The assumption of most Christians is that those were the first books of the Bible in the New Testament, where they're listed first. But the epistles of Paul were before them. The letters of Paul were written earlier. And, and that's going to come into play in our discussion as we go along. But Paul, and, and we're talking maybe between 80, 30, and 60 or something like that. We're talking about within the lifetime of the people um, that we were talking about. So so when when he was talking about this very first scripture, uh, when I put up in here, Acts 2 and 22, where it says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you know yourselves. He wasn't, those writers, Luke was not talking about people that were dead and gone. He was making a statement in the midst of people that lived at that time while they were still living. People that could refute anything he had to say if he was lying, but there was nothing to refute. In the same in the same token, Paul, when he was sitting over here talking about the fact that in him all things were created, there were people right then and there that knew what he did, the signs and miracles. And people could have easily uh, counteracted what Paul said. Matter of fact, they were not just believers, they were enemies of the gospel that wanted to get rid of Jesus. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how they can ignore uh, these things. Like I said, there's the scriptures attest to Jesus, but let's, let's, let's continue here. Let's go back into this story a little bit more. Uh, like I said, we must remember that the Logos concept had its origin in Greek thought. Um, it was only natural that the early Christians, after coming in contact with the Greeks, would be influenced by their thoughts. And I showed you a couple of scriptures that attest to it. But by no means can we designate this as the only clue to the rise of his doctrine. St. Paul and the early church followers could have never come to the conclusion that Jesus was divine if there had not been some uniqueness in the personality of the historical Jesus. Okay. What Jesus brought into life 
was a new personality. And those who came under its spell, this is what Dr. Key wrote, were more and more convinced that he with whom they had walked and talked in Galilee uh, could be nothing less than a divine person. Um, to the earliest Christians, this breathtaking conviction was not the conclusion of an argument, but the inescapable solution of a problem. Who was this Jesus? They saw that Jesus could not merely be explained in terms of psychological mood of the age in which he lived, for such explanation failed to answer another inescapable question. Why did Jesus differ from many others in the same setting? And so the early Christians answered this question by saying that he was the divine son of God. Well, let's back this up a little bit. Let's back this up a little bit. First of all, so what did he say here? They came under his spell. Jesus is a conjurer now. Um, it, it, what Jesus brought was this new personality. Let's look what it says in Mark. Uh, hold on a second. Yeah, let's go to Mark. I'm going to show you something here. Let's go to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such a large number that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering that mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm talking about this divine sonship. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to himself, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? That is an excellent question. Who can forgive sins but God? This is the question that my Jehovah Witness friends should think about. Anybody should think about that thinks that Jesus is not God. Because it's clear. They, they, those writers are clear. Yes, that's true. Only God can forgive sins. 
So if if he isn't God, then he was blaspheming. But if he is God, he wasn't. So what did Jesus do in that situation? Let us see here. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was a was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, he knew in a spirit immediately. Omniscience, all-knowing, another attribute of God. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But... I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, <coughs> excuse me, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like it. You know, what's, fa what's fascinating, I remember going to some of these revival shows or some of these things where you got these faith healers and stuff, and these folks were all talking about they got the power to heal. And they have people come down there and pray for them. And they say, well, you know, you have to believe that you're going to receive it. And you have to wait. They'll say stuff like, well, you've been healed, but you have to wait for the manifestation. Nobody ever had to wait for the manifestation of healing from Jesus. They were healed. Boom. That was it. When he healed somebody, they were healed. I think the only time I can think about where somebody wasn't healed immediately was when this guy said he saw trees, looked like he saw trees or something. And I think I don't know if that was when Jesus spit on the ground or whatever, made some mud and rubbed in the guy's eyes or whatever. Then boom, he seen. But going back to this section that we're talking about. I don't want to lose a thought because we're talking about the divine sonship. And let's go back and look at this part again. Paragraph four. Uh, let me see the four. One, two, three. Paragraph three. When he says up for love, he says, but by no means can we designate that. I know I'm going backwards. This as the only clue to the rise of this doctrine. St. Paul. I want to keep that in focus. And the early church followers could have never come to the conclusion that Jesus was divine if there had not been some uniqueness in the personality in his personality of the historical Jesus. Now, see this for him to make Dr. King to make this statement is either being disingenuous or biblically ignorant. I mean, I. I or, as I've alluded to before, maybe in this theology, maybe in this university and in his mind, 
when we take our Bible, we have to separate uh, our Bible. We have to separate the, the miraculous from everything else, and then maybe we can accept what's left. Maybe that's what it is. Because that statement is fraudulent. It makes no sense, particularly when we go to Acts chapter 9. And let's do that. I want to look at this clear. Hold on a second. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at this closely. Then Saul, now this is Paul, before his conversion, still breathing threats. You know, Saul was, a, was an enemy of the church. He was on fire as a zealot, and he thought he was serving God. And I, and I often wonder... And I think that maybe God kept him because God saw that his heart was sincere. He was just sincerely wrong. And God was going to use him to do his bidding once he straightened him out. But when, when after Jesus was crucified, Saul was about the business of trying to gather up Christians and, and get them brought up on charges and in prison and maybe even killed. Saul was there gathering the, the coats of those that stoned the first martyr of the church, Stephen, to death. So he wasn't beyond watching Christians get killed. He was a, he was a deathly enemy of the church. So it says, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples and the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, of the way was another term describing Christians, believers, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he became, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying um, to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I believe, I haven't read this in a while, but I believe the goads is like when you got these, these oxen or whatever, and they're, they're, you know, they're walking and there's things in their neck to help keep them straight. And I could be wrong. It's been a while since I looked that up. But nevertheless, what's important is here it is. Saul knew that Jesus was crucified. As far as Saul was concerned, Jesus was dead. 
and these people were running this story. So Saul was a, a zealot trying to get the Jewish people back in line with Judaism. And here he has come face to face with the resurrected Lord. Jesus decided to reveal himself to this, this, this Jew, his enemy. So he saw trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then Saul said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Hold on a second here. You know, this was, this was amazing. Here it is. This guy became the uh, greatest apostle as far as books, at least, in the New Testament, who was a flat-out enemy of the church. It just shows you that God, number one, it shows you that God's will won't be, um, you, you, you can't overshoot his will. Number two, it, it shows he could use anybody. You know, those, those of us that have done some really stupid things and think that we're unworthy of him, all we have to do is repent, commit our life to him, and he can use us. He's, he's used all kinds of people, all kinds. Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, uh, David was a murderer. He didn't use all kinds of folks, so he can use me, he can use you. All we have to do is be willing to submit to his will. And Saul, he recognized right away, oh, wow, okay, what do you want me to do? And he turned around and he went to the city and Ananias, there was a man named Ananias who God said, I want you to go get my guy Saul. And Ananias said, whoa, this is a bad dude. You sure you want me to do that? Now this is Sam Tally paraphrase. He said, yes, Saul sees you, a man named Ananias praying for him because Saul was blinded. He couldn't even see then. I mean, Jesus struck him blind. And I think he was blind and didn't eat none for three days. And when Ananias prayed for him, the scales fell from his eyes and he could see. And he was on the march for the Lord right away. So I, I look at Saul as being a wind-up toy that, that, that was going full blast in the wrong direction. And all God did was turn him around in the right direction. And he kept going full blast. But the fact of it, I know I sort of went on a tangent, but I'm going back to where Dr. King was sitting over here implying that Saul and the early church people uh, followers could have never come to the conclusion that Jesus was divine. When Saul met him, that's why I said that he was either disingenuous or, 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 or that he don't know the Bible. Or he's and his people somehow separated the miraculous and I must say the theological, much, much of the theological and miraculous from the Bible. So <clears throat> that doesn't hold water. 
Let's see here. Um, let's continue. Let us bear with me here. Make sure that you were okay. So let's continue here. Jesus the Christ, and actually that is the proper name because Jesus was his name and the Christ was his title, meaning Messiah. And later, under the influence of Greek thought forms, let me back up so it doesn't sound so convoluted. Um why did Jesus differ from many others in the same setting? And so the early Christians answered this question by saying that he was a, the divine son of God. As Hitley laconically states, the church had found God in Jesus, and so it called Jesus the Christ. No, they didn't find the church, God in Jesus. They found out that Jesus was God. And later, under the influence of Greek thought forms, the only begotten son of God. Wow. I guess he's never read the Gospel of John. Um, the church called Jesus divine because they had found God in him. They could only identify with him with the highest and best in the universe. It was this great experience with the historical Jesus which led the early Christians to see him as the divine son of God. You know, this, 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 I, I guess what troubles me so much is that this stuff is easily refutable with scripture. And if I was dealing with an atheist or an agnostic or, you know, somebody that had issues with the Bible as far as being God's word, you know, that would make better sense, but I'm supposed to be dealing here with a person supposedly that loves and believes in God's word. All right, fine. Let's go back to the scripture. Let's go to Matthew. Um, look, not, not over here. We get over here. Let's get this together. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ and the Messiah, the son of the living God. You know, Peter said a lot of stupid things in his life, but this wasn't one of them. Because what did Jesus do? Blessed are you, Simon Bor Jonah, 
flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It doesn't get, you know, going back to Dr. King, uh, it was this great experience with the historical Jesus that led the early Christians to see him as a divine son of God. Jesus asked his disciples flat out, who am I? And when Simon told him, Peter, <coughs> you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the chosen one, the redeemer of the world the son of the living God. Now, if Jesus wasn't and he accepted that, that would truly be blasphemy. I don't know what Dr. King was thinking here. I have no idea. It, it, it makes no sense to me. Um, what is starting to make sense to me is the action of his disciples, the actions of people like Reverend Jackson and Raphael Warnick. But God willing, I'll get into that another time. Or from a straight biblical theological perspective, this paper, and I and by the way, I've asked people from the beginning, if you have evidence that he changed his theology. Please let me know. I'll indicate it. I'll, I'll state it. I'd like to see that written documentation. If he repented of this, because this stuff right here is not good. So let's move on. I want to get the second one done, the virgin birth thing. And... Uh, Next week, I'm just going to spend it on the resurrection and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll at least be through with this article or this, this class paper he wrote. The second doctrine in our discussion posits the virgin birth. By the way, if you don't believe in the Son of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth or the resurrection, I don't know why you would spend time looking at the Bible. I, I don't understand it. it. I don't even know why you would even pretend to be a Christian. Because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, hold on a second. Okay. The second doctrine in our discussion posits the virgin birth. This doctrine gives the modern scientific mind much more trouble than the first. For it seems downright improbable and even impossible for anyone to be born without a human father. Okay. Anyone? Yes. Jesus? No. But now, once again, we're denying the supernatural. First, we must admit that the evidence for the tenability of this doctrine is shallow. Um, no, is too shallow to convince any objective thinker. 
any objective biblical thinker, any objective atheistic thinker. Why why would it be? See, this see this is my problem is if he doesn't believe in the the miraculous, then what is it about Christianity that attracted him? What is it? Is it is it the the good morals and and the love thy neighbor philosophy uh, that he can use um, to promote or he used rather to promote the welfare of his people? Was that what it was? Because objective thinkers, if you're thinking objectively from a scriptural point of view, scripture defines scripture. And if you can't refute scripture, then what's the problem? And if you can't refute scripture, then why are you bothering with it? Anyway, to begin with, the earliest written documents in the New Testament make no mention of the virgin birth. Moreover, the Gospel of Mark, the most primitive and authentic of the four, gives not the slightest suggestion of the virgin birth. Now, let's... let's Okay, let me wait. The effort to justify this doctrine on the grounds that it was predicated by the prophet Isaiah is immediately eliminated for all New Testament scholars agree that the word virgin is not found in the Hebrew original, but only in the Greek text, which is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word for young woman. How then did this doctrine arise? Let's go back to, to begin with the earliest written documents of the New Testament make no mention of the virgin birth. Let me show you something what one of the earliest documents of the New Testament <clears throat> does state. Let's see here. This is very important. Let's look at this closely. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. So this is Paul. Like I said earlier, Paul's writing predates Mark's, predates Matthew, Luke, and John. Paul was the apostle that Jesus met on the Damascus Trail and blinded, that he met personally after he was resurrected from the dead. He is attesting here that the Bible, all of it, came from God. Yes, man wrote it, but they were moved by the Spirit of God. And there's no contradiction in there. Now, let's talk about what Mark doesn't say. Mark doesn't say anything refuting the virgin birth. Mark doesn't even pick up with the genealogy of Jesus like it does in Matthew and Luke. It doesn't pick up with the birth of Jesus. So so he, so King was sitting here arguing from a position that 
wasn't even an issue. The early church didn't find this as an issue. It wasn't like, I mean, Mark picked up where Jesus was an adult. So what's the point? What's the problem? Uh, now let's, let's, let's deal with Isaiah. Let's deal with this. And let's keep in mind that all scripture came from God. Okay. But let's deal with this Isaiah thing. The prophet Isaiah, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, let, 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 let's give Dr. King a break. Okay, let's say a young maiden. Fine. Let's say, let's say a young maiden. Um, that's, that's the word. Let's go with that. I don't have a problem with it. You know, Dr. King didn't imply, from what I can see, that the, the uh, prophecy wasn't pertaining to Jesus. His, his implication was that this woman wasn't a virgin. Isn't that what I got here? Let's go back here. Uh, moreover, the Gospel of Mark, the most primitive and authentic of the four, gives not the slightest suggestion of the virgin birth. The effort to justify this doctrine on the grounds that it was predicted by the prophet Isaiah is immediately eliminated. I don't know about that, but anyway. For all the New Testament scholars agree that the word virgin is not found in the Hebrew original, but only in the Greek text, which is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word for young woman. How then did this doctrine arise? he says okay um let me let me say let me read what he wrote before i go come back to refute this a clue to this inquiry may be found in the sentence from saint justin's first apology that's not biblical here justin states that the birth of jesus is quite similar to the birth of the sons of zeus it was believed in greek thought that an extraordinary person could only be explained by saying that he had a father who was more than human. It is probable that this Greek idea influenced Christian thought. And more adequate explanation for the rise of this doctrine is found in the experience which the early Christians had with Jesus. The people saw with Jesus such a uniqueness of quality and spirit that to explain him in terms of ordinary background was to them quite inadequate. For his early followers, this spiritual uniqueness could only be accounted for in terms. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't let you guys see this. Uh, I'm talking. Sorry about that. Let me see. Here is the page um, that I was reading. 
you know, to include second to the last paragraph. Uh, how does Dr. Rise, I'll say it again, a clue to this inquiry may be found in a sentence from St. Justin's first apology. Here, Justin states that the birth of Jesus is quite similar to the birth of the sons of Zeus. It was believed in Greek thought that an extraordinary person could only be explained by saying that he had a father who was more than human. It is probable that this Greek idea influenced Christian thought. A more adequate explanation for the rise of this doctrine is found in the experience which the early Christians had with Jesus. The, I guess it's mean, they, uh, the people saw with in Jesus such a uniqueness of quality and spirit that to explain him in terms of ordinary background was to them quite inadequate. For his early followers, his spiritual uniqueness could only be accounted for in terms uh, of biological uniqueness. They were not unscientific in their approach because they had no knowledge of the scientific. They could only express themselves in terms of the pre-scientific thought patterns of their day. No laws were broken because they had no, no knowledge of the existence of law. They only knew that they had been with the Jesus of history and that his spiritual life was far beyond theirs, that to explain his biological origin as identified with theirs was quite inadequate. We off this, as it says, we off this scientific age, we of this scientific age will not explain the birth of Jesus in such unscientific terms, but we have to admit with the early Christians that the spiritual uniqueness of Jesus stands as a mystery to man. This is what he wrote. Now, let me get down to the, let me refute this. Excuse me, let me let the Bible refute this. Because this is nonsense. Let's go down the loop and see the context. Like I said, she, fine. You want to say that Isaiah 7 and 14 was a young maiden? I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it. Let's look at the context and, and Luke. Now, in the sixth month, this is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee and Nazareth to a virgin, Parthenos, if I'm selling it right, equals maiden or unmarried daughter. Okay, you want to say she's a maiden, a young woman? Fine. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Okay? But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and consider the manner of his greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. 
he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I know not a man? What? What did she say? She said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. All scripture is breathed from God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction. Mary acknowledged her virginity right then to the angel. The angel of God. You remember when if we look at what Elizabeth, uh, before she got prairie, uh, excuse me, pregnant, and they, the angel came and talked to uh, um, her husband, Zacchaeus. Is that, I'm not sure I'll get his name wrong. Anyway, and he doubted what the angel had to say, and the angel made him uh, mute until the baby was born. But here, Mary, the angel is telling her, you're going to have a kid. She said, hey, that's funny. I ain't never had sex. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you, upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Here, even the angel provided evidence all the way back to the beginning for the sonship of Jesus. How Dr. King I mean, I don't know how anybody that's supposed to be a minister of the gospel can write stuff like this. I I, I don't get it. If you, the, the only thing that makes sense is you don't believe the Bible. If you can write stuff like that, you don't believe the Bible. And I know that there's people that that, that either watched a little bit or might have saw the title and said, why is Sam jumping on Martin Luther King? He, he's just saying, what, what is he doing? The fact of it is, is we are supposed to give a, a reason for the hope that we have. And if it comes to stepping on toes, I'll step on anybody's toes to stepping on the Lord's toes. I'm not trying to step on his toes. I don't you know, care about his toes. But the gospel has to be defended. That's what we were called to do. There's no getting around that. You know, I mean, when push comes to shove, when all this stuff is over and sad and done, we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God, all of us, every last one. And we're going to have to give an account for every careless word. And I got a whole lot of careless words I got to give account for. But there ain't going to be a careless word about me not believing what the gospel says or me not making an attempt to defend the gospel, no matter who it may um hurt and but the fact that it is how many people have been hurt from this kind of theology from this kind of teaching that dr king had and believed 
and how and, and people disseminating this kind of stuff from the pulpit. This is the kind of stuff from the pulpit that I believe makes it quite easy for people uh, to think that abortion is fine. And I, I I know a person that's the you know ministers of the supposedly of the gospel that believes this stuff and teaches this stuff. And now that I understand more why they're doing it. It's wrong, but it's making more sense to me. And I, I look to expose that in the coming days. But next week, I want to finish this thing uh, because I want to touch on, whoops, where'd that come from? Sorry about that. I want to touch on the resurrection, his position on the resurrection. And who knows, maybe I can get to the other part, but wow. I just pray the Lord that true believers will study the word. Don't take my word for it. Don't take somebody else's word for it. When it comes judgment time, we're going to have to stand over there and face the Lord by ourselves. So study the word, be prepared, and live for the Lord. This is Sam Tolley. I'm out.